there's just one exit If you blink, you've gone too far We all get our news from the gal behind the bar It takes a village to raise this community And even if you don't go to church You say grace or give your thanks before you eat This is us A small town in America And put simply We like things how they used to be We got one stop sign The bar closes at nine And we got an Exxon You can't miss it It's up there on the right And this is home We take care of our own If you can't relate Get back on the interstate and go Welcome, hopefully it's welcome back, welcome to another episode of Climax the Podcast, Love Letter to a Small Town, a product of the Climax Scots Digital Network. As you've likely come to expect, this is proud 1998 graduate of Climax Scots Junior Senior High School, my name's Kevin Harvey, and this week, well, this is a part two. We cliffhangered ya, yep, that's right, I just used cliffhanger as a verb. We are bold here on Climax the Podcast. We're also thankful to those who help us keep the lights on, our sponsors and partners, and that's why we do the business up front. Because where would Climax the Podcast be without folks like our OG sponsor, Kristen Wachowski with State Farm? I've known Kristen nearly my entire life, and she's an incredibly trustworthy person. She has a passion, she has a strong work ethic, and that translates right to you, her customers, or potential customers. Kristen's office is on 20th Street in Battle Creek, Michigan, behind Chicago Title and across the street from Ollie's, right there at the intersection of Columbia and 20th Street. She and her team are there, or they're on the phone lines at 269-968-5130 to help you with any needs you might have, whether that be auto insurance, motorcycle insurance, homeowner's insurance, condo, renters, business insurance, life insurance, recreational vehicle, boats, and more. Get in touch with these fine folks because I guarantee you they are going to help you out at every turn that you need when it comes to insurance. Whether you stop in and see the gang, whether you give them a call, or go to the website, that's callkristin.com, K-R-I-S-T-I-N, callkristin.com. And again, where would we be without great support like we get from Eldred Homestead Bed and Breakfast? Located at 6378 South 44th Street in Climax, this historic homestead is just rife with history, with character, and just plain fun. Now, maybe you're looking to come back home to Climax and visit. Maybe you're going to visit Climax for the first time out of curiosity. Or maybe you just kind of need to do that getaway, but getting away is a little bit of a challenge. Consider a stay at Eldred Homestead Bed and Breakfast. You can check out their Airbnb listing at airbnb.com. You can give them a call at 269-808-8183 or send them an email to eldredhomestead at gmail.com. And Climax the Podcast would be a really hard show to exist without the support and the archival access that we've had from our friends at Prairie Historical Society. PHS has been documenting the histories of Climax Scots in the surrounding areas for almost 40 years now. PHS is open to the public in the History Room at Lawrence Memorial District Library. They're open on Tuesdays from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. and on Thursdays from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. You can like their page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Climax PHS. And all the good PHS has done over those 40 years has been as a nonprofit organization. PHS has kept going by generous donations from listeners just like you. Their annual memberships start at just $15 a year. That $15 will get you their six bi-monthly newsletters. And there's probably some more online stuff coming in a relatively short matter of time. 
To become a member or otherwise donate to Prairie Historical Society, you can send those payments to Prairie Historical Society, 107 North Main Street, P.O. Box 82, Climax, Michigan, 49034. And I often like to throw this out there as well. There's a few different ways that you can send money to Climax Scott's Digital Network through the website ClimaxScott'sDigitalNetwork.com. If you'd prefer to send an electronic payment to PHS, you can send it through CSDN, and I will make sure it gets to the PHS. And of course, Climax the Podcast is a product of the Climax Scott's Digital Network. For more information on what that's all about, you can go to our website, ClimaxScott'sDigitalNetwork.com, or csdigitalnetwork.org, two different web addresses that go to the same place, or you can download our new app to your smartphone or your mobile device. We're going to talk a little bit about things that are going on at CSDN and some other projects that you might not know about that we've been doing for a couple of months now. So stay tuned after this week's main event for a little bit more on what's going on with CSDN. And just like that, the business is done. As for the main event this week, well, you already know who it is. It's Gil Culver. And if you haven't listened to a part two before here on Climax the Podcast, we usually play the last minute, maybe two minutes of part one to remind you kind of where we left off last week so that we can jump right back on the horse and keep that conversation going. So without further ado, let's segue to the main event of episode 27. The phone lines are now open. Part two with Gil Culver. I forget. Now, uh, after graduating Climax, was it University of Michigan and then service, or was it service, then U of M? Oh, actually, it was um, Kellogg Community College. Okay. Two years. And then U of M, and then the Air Force. Gotcha. Well, it's got to be a a good thing for you with the national championship just happening last week. They had to be kind of fun to watch. Well. (laughs) Yep, Gil's adorned in a... A well-worn Michigan sweatshirt it's, right now. It's aged, but it still works. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the way I look at some of my wardrobe. Heck, that's the way I look in the mirror sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah great, uh, great things for Michigan. And then I don't know that I ever knew about your Air Force service until I was doing a little homework before we met up today. Um, yeah, basically um, went in with hopes of being a pilot. And... Um, um, got through, well, all the way to, you know, being sent to a, uh, under what you would consider like an undergraduate program, but where you started in the uh, uh, pilot training program, and then they uh, did another physical you had to have. I'd already passed two of them. And the third one, I, I failed the hearing test. And, you know, they had all kinds of limitations as to who could and who couldn't, uh, you know, continue through that program. So I got washed out of that and went into, um, then it was more a matter of they actually gave you a few choices, you know, that um, you want to, we got openings here, 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 and here. And so I ended up being a communications officer because that was what I had the best background for a culver in communications i don't know if that would ever work out (laughs) did you find that kind of growing up in a communications household did that help you a bit with the military or was that just a completely different animal um yeah probably uh, a whole different beast because it was you know we were the outfit i was assigned to it was responsible for 
all of the communications and all of the um, air, airport stuff. That, ah, gotcha. That did navigation and communications and so on. And um, for the whole, it was called the North Com area, so it was the northern half of the 48 states. And that was a lot of um, systems because every Air Force base has a phone service. Every Air Force base has a runway. So then they had ILSs and NDBs and all of these things, and they were all, our job was to monitor that they were working and then report to the appropriate party, well, this is broken, that's not working, we need to get it fixed. And that was, uh, so yes, it had some tie, but, Anybody with probably any engineering degree could have handled it all right. It wasn't that uh, technical, so to speak. So we got our education. We had our military time in. And then sometime, was it late 60s? I I just actually read an article talking about Mr. Gilbert Culver and Mrs. Culver and their son. Was it, is Kelly the oldest of your kids? Kelly's the oldest, yeah. yeah. And it was... The three of them are moving back from it looked like New York at the time to come back and get in the family business. Right. And was that always the plan? Like when you were kind of going through college and military and everything, did you feel like you kind of planned on coming back to the family business? Well, it was always a um, certainly in the background, but um, um, there was an attraction to saying, "Well, what else is there?" You know, what else might I choose to do or think would be, um, you know, more fun? And I actually did a few interviews with some uh, national companies that were looking for engineers and um, so on. And then spent, you know, got drafted, which took care of that issue and joined the Air Force and then Air Force is really a lot like working for a big company when you get right down to it. So you never knew year to year or week to week who was going to be the boss. Was the boss going to be okie dokie or somebody that uh, either didn't know what he was doing or was hard to get along with? He had all those various issues that can happen in those kind of situations. And then... Um, about the time of my discharge, uh, at that time, Dad had a um, technician, lineman, that worked for us, worked for him, and he left. And so that, that left Dad in a predicament of having to take care of everything himself. And it was just you know weeks or months before my discharge and so I said, no, I'm going to go home and uh, go uh, help Dad. So that was kind of where the decision was made. And that, um, and you know, again, family was all here. Friends were here, you know. People I'd known, like Mark Sinclair, I met him when he was in three-cornered pants, you know, so. <laughs> yep, and... Looking back at uh, just some of the different articles, 
learning a little bit more about your dad probably than I'd ever realized up to this point. I, I got a good chuckle out of a quote he had, and I thought it just seemed to sum up a lot about John Culver's work mm-hmm. ethic of, it's not hard to work your way to the top of this company. That just might be the top of a telephone pole because <laughs> yeah. he would quite literally be the one at the top yeah, of the telephone pole doing the work. work. Yep. <laughs> well, and you had a lot of that too. I mean, there's there's more than a handful of pictures of this uh, these couple folders in front of us right now of you at the switchboards or working on yeah. different things or in, down in the manhole in 1980 when you and Bill were switching to underground yet another, there's that theme again, another innovation yep. in Climax Tech. Yep. Yeah, that's the way it worked. And uh, <laughs> again, things were, they, they came about gradually, I guess, so to speak. So when in the very early days of burying cable, if you had to cross a road, in some cases, people would just put a pole on each side, mm-hmm. run the cable up and run it across. And why would you do that? Well, uh, if it was a gravel road, you could dig across it with a, a trencher or plow or whatever the case might be. You can't when it's paved. Well, how do you get under it? Uh, well, that's an interesting project. And the very first ones we did, I went out with a shovel, and Dad would drop me off, and he'd have a mark on the ground, and he'd say, you know, it's got to be five feet deep and two feet wide and ten feet long, and that was that was basically digging a grave. <laughs> and then we would take iron pipe and pound it through with a sledgehammer. And that it worked, but it didn't always work real well because you'd hit a rock or who knew, you know what what might happen. And you'd have to go 30 feet. And, uh, you know, that meant in that 10-foot hole, you had to splice them together, you know, and uh, keep going. And that that worked for quite a little while. And then we came up with the idea of, well, if you had a backhoe, you could dig the hole and then use the, the uh, shovel on the backhoe to push the pipe through. And that sped the process up a lot. Um, and one of the steps in between that was we had a railroad tie hanging from two ropes and you'd swing it. <laughs> gotcha. Because that would hit harder than a sledgehammer. So innovation came along and then, then the next step was um, the ones that would auger they like a drill. Yeah. And they just turned and moved it through. And uh, that was the way that you learned eventually and, and got to the point that we had replaced all of the overhead wires with buried cable. Years and years of projects. Well, and Climax was one of the first to do this in this area to go underground with the phone cable, was it not? I yeah. seem to remember that being kind of a, a yeah. big deal. Yep, it was. And it was... For good reason, it um, you just had a whole lot less trouble. You, you had a real problem when you had trouble, but well, especially when we look at weather like we're having now yeah. and yeah. Yeah. snow and ice and yeah. digging's wanna... no fun in the frozen ground, but <laughs> not at all. And yeah. then around that same time, was that also how you ended up getting uh, 
the cable television to the households when that came in? Um, yeah, there was a uh, entrepreneur type guy that came in and built the system. It had it running, and then I think he, you know, maybe had plans of trying to get several communities. Didn't work, and so he wanted to sell it, and then we we bought the the facility itself. Gotcha. To get the cable TV started. And then we could expand it because when we'd uh, bury a cable somewhere, well, we could throw two cables in and uh, move it out to get cover more uh, territory. Well, it just makes sense if you're down there anyway. Yeah. Might as well get a twofer or yep. set up houses that maybe don't have cable now, but if they ever said, hey, we want to get cable, now you've got a tap and got a live wire. Yeah. And people wouldn't. You know, they might neighborhood might get together, you know, on a street and say, "Hey, there's five of us. Let's see if we all took the service. Maybe they could afford to bring it out to yeah. us." And that that worked. Yeah. And again, it was a small community. You know, people knew how to coordinate. Well, we still see that to this day. But even two or three times already in this conversation, completely organically, we've seen how many examples of. <laughs> Okay, a, b- a bunch of people said we want to do this. We put our heads together and we figure out, okay, how how, how the heck it? do we make this happen? Yep. Uh, so something entirely different off the, the path of uh, Climax and then the, the phone company, I wanted to call out something that I don't know if a lot of people necessarily knew or maybe rem- remember, but you've been recognized quite a bit for your, was it Wings of Mercy, the piloting oh, program yeah. that you did? Wings of Mercy, yep. Tell us a little bit about that, because that's something that as I was reading up on it, I thought, how did I never know or at least commit it to my mid-40s memory that Gil did this? Well, what happened there was um, it's an interesting story. There was a, a gentleman up in Holland, uh, Michigan, who was a, uh, a pilot, not professionally, but his business was... Uh, uh, I can't remember exactly what he did. I think it had something to do with antennas and so on. And he got to the stage of uh, retirement and moved to uh, Florida. And then um, been quoted a few times on what happened, but he was in Florida and got to doing the stuff we all do down there, fishing and so on and so forth. And somehow he was out on the back of the boat uh, fishing one day, and he said a voice from nowhere came and said, you should be doing something better than this. And his story is, and I have no problem with believing it, after following what he what he did was the God was talking to him, and he was moved by that. And so he apparently went back and told his wife, well, we're going back to Holland, and uh, I'm going to start a um, Wings of Mercy. And he had a what would be considered a small twin-engine airplane and started by communicating 
locally with the medical field to say, well, um, you know, if you have a patient that really needs to get in, I think in the probably the first cases it would have been needs to get from Holland area to Ann Arbor or possibly, you know, Cleveland sure. clinic or, or a Mayo places clinic or that something like weren't that. terribly far away and they either physically can't travel commercially by air and it's too far to drive and they're physically not <clears throat> able to handle that, I'll fly them. And that he started it himself, actually, using his airplane and, <clears throat> um, and always adding a second pilot for safety purposes. <clears throat> and then he started seeking other volunteers because well, there are people just right there in the at that Holland Airport would see what was going on and say, well, what are you doing? And he'd tell them. And uh, they'd say, oh, man, that's cool. Well, I can do that. And I got into it through Bill Middleton, who was the superintendent mm -hmm. of schools here. He found out about it. And he wasn't a pilot, but he was a crewman in World War II, so he knew about um, you know how aviation is a bug, uh, infectious, and it grows. And it once it's a part of your your life, why it's a big part. And he said, "You ought to look into that." Because at that time, I had a reasonable twin-engine airplane that could make those kind of trips, and that's what what got it started. And then. I connected with a, three or four guys that I knew that were also pilots, so we'd have two, sure. two of us to uh, make the trip, and um, two or three of them also t took it up later on, and then that's the way it spread, and uh, they do hundreds of flights a year, and when we got to where. It upgraded to a bigger, faster airplane. Then what we would do is is look for the ones that were maybe a little far for the the, the type of airplane that, like the founder had, he couldn't get there without stopping, or it would take him five hours of flying time, and <clears throat> so on. So we flew people to Boston. Uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Canada, you know, longer trips were the ones that we would try to focus on. <clears throat> and that that's kind of what got that going. And then another running theme for, I know, for your dad and also for yourself and your whole family, just the investment in education, particularly here at the local level. I mean, gosh, there's still to this day a computer lab named in your father's memory. And now you were Climax Scott's Board of Education as well as KVISD Board, were you not? Yes. And I know you were president of KVISD, if memory serves. Were you, uh, 
were you just a trustee with the Climax Board of Education, or had you held different officer roles over that time, too? Um, Climax, no, I was just a trustee. Um, and the ISD one, I, I don't remember for sure. But I was on that for a few years, yeah. And it, it was a, a good connection. Yep, and then for... Folks, today, KVISD may be a bit of a reference. Basically, that was Kalamazoo Valley Intermediate School, School District, District, and I believe that's now what is KRESA. I think it has changed, right. Similar <clears throat> idea, but a little bit different name. Yeah. So when you hear about the, the new CTE centers and some of the different education for employment and then the education for arts, similar idea, just a different, different name at a different time. Yeah, I, I probably morphed into that over time as, uh, you know, maybe the need, demand, um, opportunity started to change. But the whole theory was Climax, Scott, Galesburg, all of these ones that were in the Kalamazoo area could, you know, send kids to the next level. Yep. And at, at that stage of the game, I don't remember that you didn't get college credit, you just got high school credit. But you did have then experience, as we talked about, maybe in calculus that nobody else could yep. have had. Or our CS just, didn't have a teacher with the credentials for it. We it. could farm you know, right. the student out, and they would right. start their day maybe first hour at yep. a Kalamazoo No, there was a bus that ran, and it would uh, a small bus, you know, but it would take four from here and pick up three more in Galesburg, and then run into the uh, the district school uh, facility, and that's where they would take their class and then, whoop, turn around and come back. Yeah, and just seeing what that has even continued to morph into is, gosh, there's kids who I think spend half their day or more yeah. <laughs> someplace yeah. else now. And fundamentally are through a year of college before they finish high school. Yeah, that's a very helpful thing. And coming back to maybe full-ish circle with the phone companies. So the automated systems, eventually some MCIs get in there. We go underground, eventually Optic comes in. And looking through the many different innovations and things, is there any particular thing you think maybe you're most proud of or that was one of the most significant jobs of all those different challenges and changes? Well, you know, as we kind of started the process when you looked at, you know, what set the table for being able to do the next step. So having extended area service into Battle Creek and Kalamazoo resulted in um, having a facility that was big enough to handle a lot of traffic. So then when uh, microwave communications came along and they were the first ones to really be able to compete with AT&T for long distance, the point became, well, when you wanted to get an AT&T call, you dialed one, and then you dialed the area code you wanted, and then you called, dialed the phone number you wanted. Well, the Bell system companies obviously did not want that competition because they were all owned by AT&T. Yep. So that was the fight. And the, they said, well, 
the government says we have to let you compete, so we will, but you're going to have to dial a seven-digit number in order to get connected to MCI to, con to dial the 13 digits that it takes to get to where you want to go. And they swore that that was the only way it could be done. And I basically went to a uh, national telephone convention meeting and the fellow that spoke was the first independent phone company that had found a way to connect with MCI. And they were a small company right adjacent to Sioux Falls, um, South Dakota. And they had EAS, Extended Area Service, into Sioux Falls. Sioux Falls is not as big as Battle Creek, but it was a fair-sized um, town, and they said, we can do it. And so I came back from that meeting and said, you know, we could do that because we had a digital switch. And you could say, well, okay, well, what, how are you going to make that work? I said, well, we just have to pick a number that we can use because we're not using it for something else and give that to MCI. So we ended up with the digit five. So you dial five, you'd go right straight to MCI, and then you dialed your area code, blah, blah, blah. And that um, was technically what it took to make it work. And the bigger issue was we had local service to Kalamazoo and Battle Creek and Galesburg and Scotts. So for MCI, that was a much larger market oh sure that they could go to and say well if you want to you know be able to use mci service you just need to sign up with climax telephone company for your local service and you'll have the bigger calling area plus cheaper long distance and that was though well, we were the third company in the country to do it and it was basically just by saying, no, you can have equal access. And that eventually let them grow uh, and to the point that eventually the uh, bigger companies had to give in and say, yeah, okay. Because other would look at it and say, Climax Telephone Company can do it and you can't? <laughs> Come on, you know, so... Well, that's that's part of what I love is I, I guess it's just growing up here, but I love any sort of a score one for the little guy scenario yeah. you can get like that. And, you know, the small town has so many benefits. I mean, obviously you raised three great kids here. And did all three of the kids end up in the family business yes. over time? Because mm -hmm. yep. I thought I saw that uh, Stacy was the CEO she was. for a while. Yep. 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 For... Uh, five or six, seven years, maybe, yeah. And uh, the two boys also worked there, yeah. And yeah. that's, I think that's just very interesting to see that all the family, and even your kids too, okay, let's go out, let's explore a little bit, see what's out there in the world. But yeah. there's there's still something there, there's a, an intrinsic magnetism or something <laughs> that kind of brings you back. And 
gosh, after 21 years in Chicago, I finally just had this moment of, wait, there's a path right here, right now to get home. I was out like a, I was out like a gunshot. Just, it's still kind of weird to me that we're sitting in this room right now, but just the, to be back with people who genuinely care about you and generations of those, (laughs) those families, the Bosbergs, the Van Middlesworths, and the list just goes on and on. Yeah. But it's, it's been a pleasure to be part of that community and to get to know great folks like you and your whole family. And we're probably pretty close to where we could do a close. Is there any particular thing you would like to make sure we get into or message for the masses? Um, no, I think we covered the, the page as far as the, uh, you know, the telephone company and the steps that took place because we I've always used the the terminology to say well there were revolutions in the industry and when you get to the point the lesson learned is unexpected changes can be addressed as either a challenge or an opportunity and that had to be I think key to the to the whole process working was rather than um, view things that were making dramatic changes in whatever business you're in or even in your personal life you need to look at them and say well you can either give in and uh, surrender to it or say well what can I do to make this work better and those you know those things help the company to grow and somebody who has been part of almost every innovation there's been in the telephone industry, how does it feel to you to go from little flags raising in the, the Culver <laughs> family home to dial a five, then a one, then an area code, and then the number to hold down this button on your phone and say, call Kevin? Yeah. <laughs> That's got to be, is it like a, another planet to you to see that? Or is that just kind of where you kind of were able to see things uh, going in that direction over time. Well, you did or you you did or you didn't. You can't really be a hundred percent sure of that. But I uh, still remember my dad. Um, well, forty, fifty years ago, or whatever the case was, saying, you know, if they ever figure out how to put a switch in the sky, we're dead meat. As a local wireline phone company yep. and that in fact proved to be true for any of the companies that did not take advantage of opportunity when it came along but saw it rather as uh, a barrier most of them have failed and you know shrunk to where uh, somebody had to take them over and so on and so forth they don't disappear because they're still um, still a need, but if you, you know, if you look at the, you know, the steps that came along, and as I said, we were the third company to sign up with MCI, and it was because we had a big local calling area, yada, yada, yada. Well, the MCI executives came to me and said, where else might we be able to do this in Michigan? And I said, well, 
uh, let me think about it. And I came back and said, here's four companies that could do it. And those companies could have gave them Grand Rapids, Flint, Traverse City, and Lansing. And that would have been an even bigger market than what we had, each of those individual companies, other than Traverse City. And um, so I gave them the contact information of the people that ran those companies who I knew from, you know, our history, and every one of them turned them down because they, well, my dad's quote was, well, they got bell-shaped heads, <laughs> and that's the issue was that rather than looking at a chance to be a competitive market, unregulated, which has its advantages and disadvantages, they looked at that and said, no, you people are interlopers in our society, in our business. You know, you're the, you're the crooks of the generation. Well, I think it proves over time that they were wrong. But at that point in time, rather than seeing the fact that you're now going to have to compete as an opportunity... They saw it as a, a roadblock. We needed to find a way to avoid it. And uh, in a sense, I think it's, it's sort of sad because it, it's, it might have changed the whole uh, venue of what's happening in a lot of those areas because they could have, um, you know, then had the wherewithal to be able to say, well, we can bury fiber to the homes and so on and so forth, or we can extend our service to uh, a larger marketplace. And they, you know, just took the backheaded approach to say, no, I'm not going to do that, you know. And I think you might even take that back to farming when they first came up with fertilizer. I mean, for all <laughs> I know, there could have been agriculture people that said, nope, you know, I'm not doing that. That's uh, that's not the way we raise corn and beans and so on and so forth. We've done it that way for a hundred years, and we're not changing. <laughs> I, I don't know, you know, but I yeah. I wouldn't be surprised that there was some of that that came along the the track, and then you turn around later and you say, well, how come there aren't any more eighty acre, one hundred and twenty acre farms? I don't know, but. It sure has happened. Well, in all of that that you just said, it kind of reminds me of the old adage: the old adage, if you always do what you always did, you will always get what you always, always got. So if you're trying to move forward and progress, and I don't know about you, I I probably couldn't live off the same money I made in 1996 in today's <laughs> no. world. No. So we had to change, we had yep. to learn, we had to grow, and we had to get a little bit better. And Gil, there's so many things to say thanks for, for literal decades of your family helping in every way connect the people of Climax together, just your service to Climax and Scott's communities, the schools. Thank you for 
all the many ways you supported just about every group, club, organization, or things that came along. And thanks for joining us here today on Climax the Podcast. Glad to do it. There you have it. Two weeks worth of main events here on Climax the Podcast. All thanks to one great guest in Mr. Gil Culver. In the business up front, I mentioned that we were going to talk a little bit more about Climax Scott's digital network, the website, and some other content we have going on. And if you haven't been there, please check out our website and download that app on your phone if you're able. That's going to be a key thing to how CSDN grows and keeps going. Again, the website, you can go to either ClimaxScottsDigitalNetwork.com or csdigitalnetwork.org. Again, those are two web addresses that go to ultimately the same place. And then you can download our app. Now, it's not called CSDN or a Climax Scott's Digital Network app. It's an app called Spaces by Wix. And there's a full video tutorial on the website about how to actually get that app, sign up for it, and get the notifications on your phone every time there's news and events from CSDN. The website and the app, that's where you're going to find news and blogs. That's a combination of news from in and around the Climax Scots community, as well as blogs from the journalism class that I've been working with at Climax Scots High School with Mrs. Jennifer Wright. There's all kinds of videos. There's some video archives from Prairie Historical Society. There's some things from my own personal collection in there. In fact, last week we just uploaded a match from the original Memorial Mauling, which turns 25 years old. I don't know how that's possible, but... By gosh, the Memorial Mauling was almost 25 years ago. But I digress. The history videos from my archives and PHS, those are really fun to watch. And then there's also See Us, CS, those news segment style videos where we take a look into things that are going on in and around Climax Scots. It's a great way to get Climax the podcast. You can actually get the podcast right to that app on your phone so you don't have to have another thing to subscribe to or apps to switch back and forth between. There's services. As of now, we only have the digital conversion services there on the website. We do offer some things in the realm of technical support or technical consultation. That's more of a contact us and we'll let you know if it's something that we can support and what the cost might be. Services for digital conversions of VHS tapes, digital tapes, cassette tapes. Those are priced out in pretty plain English right there on the website. But the thing I did want to mention most of all, and I'm not sure that I've ever mentioned it on Climax the Podcast... Now, normally Climax the Podcast drops on Wednesdays. The last two weeks have been a day off because, well, that's when it worked out for Gil's schedule for me and him to sit down. And I thought I wanted to put at least a solid week between part one and part two. We should be back on a Wednesday schedule next week. But on Thursday evenings at 7.30 p.m. Eastern on the Climax Scott's Digital Network Facebook page, we host History Comes to Live. That's live from the History Room in Lawrence Memorial District Library. And some weeks, I have prepared topics. Other weeks, we just go off of what people who are actually watching the live want to see. It's a fully live and interactive experience. If you've got questions you want to ask, if you've got topics you want to dig into because maybe you're not able to get into the History Room, this show is really fun to do. And we've had the same probably three to five people that have been there almost every week. And every week, we seem to be growing the audience there a little bit. I've got a couple potential really fun topics that we might cover this week. So tune in to History Comes to Live. Again, that's on CSDN's Facebook, Thursdays at 7.30. But for now, it's that time of the week where we put a bow on this episode of Climax the Podcast. Thanks again to our sponsors and partners, Kristen Wachowski with State Farm, Eldred Homestead Bed and Breakfast, and Prairie Historical Society. Of course, thanks to Gil Culver for two great weeks of interviews for Climax the Podcast. And most of all, 
thanks to you, those listening to this show. You're the reason we do it, you're the reason we keep doing it, and you're the reason we hope this show goes on for quite a long time. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe every week, and I'll talk to you guys in about one week's time. Take care. You blink, you've gone too far.